namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Continuing this uh, talk of Lumpur Sumaitas, uh, given at the Leicester Summer School uh, in, uh, on the 3rd of August 2001, and this talk is called Welcoming Everything. Awareness, then, is just noticing the way it is, the way your body is, for one thing, and the way your mental state is. So it is embracing welcoming, noticing, but not critically. So being aware is being alert, awake and intelligent. It's an alive sense of being, yet it's not passive or a negative acceptance of life through any kind of resignation to fate. You may have denied or rejected things in the past, but in awareness you include and open to them. Awareness includes even that feeling that it shouldn't be like this, it includes that also. There's nothing you can think or say or do that doesn't belong at this moment. No matter how complicated your thought processes might be, it belongs. No matter what state your body's in or your emotional state, whether you feel successful and happy or depressed and a failure, it all belongs. Then, then there is a sense of, oh, what a relief. I don't have to endlessly try to purify myself or try to make myself better. I can actually rest a bit, maybe relax and trust. What a relief. But then we think, what will I do if I don't have to do anything? If we grasp this idea of not having to do anything, quote-unquote, that also becomes absurd. So, not having to do anything is a reflective statement rather than an ideal that you hold to. If you attach to, now I don't have to do anything, that becomes an ideal again. The point is to try to use language for reflection rather than for taking a position on anything. The sense of, I've got to get something I don't have. What is that? Be the observer of it. I'm not good enough the way I am. I've got to make myself better. I've got to do something to improve myself. What is that like when you observe it as a mental state? To me, it's an incredible pushiness all the time. A sense of always being goaded on. And as long as I don't recognize it and don't see it in terms of Dhamma, it affects everything that I do. It's a kind of underlying influence of how I experience life. This constant sense that I have to get something I don't have, that I'm incomplete, imperfect, not good enough, that I've got to become enlightened, is Bhavatana in the Second Noble Truth. This is the desire to become, so it's the cause of suffering. So, uh, <clears throat> when uh, uh, talking about this, this area, then it's, it's uh, difficult uh, to sometimes get a sense of what's being talked about. We say uh, <clears throat> that sense of relief, oh, I don't have, I don't have to do anything. Um, then, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, as he said, that taking that as an idea, then that becomes something that the mind hangs on to and makes into an ideal or a, a principle that is sort of is attached to. 
Um, and so that uh, the uh, the kind of principle that's being described is uh, uh, is learning how to live without our motivation and, and uh, activities based upon self-view. And so there's this um, um, uh, Dhamma teacher in Canada called Kema Ananda, who was the one who founded uh, Arrow River uh, Dhamma Center, where Ajahn Punadhamma uh, has his uh, has his center now at his monastery. That was uh, Kema Ananda was a lay teacher who was Ajahn Punadhamma's um, uh, teacher when he was a, a lay person. I mean, uh, he went off to Thailand to become a monk, and then Kema Ananda became very ill, passed away, and then uh, Ajahn Punadhamma came back and took over Arrow River. One of uh, Kema Ananda's um, kind of uh, principles that he would talk about in this respect was to cultivate diligent effortlessness. So diligent effortlessness. And another expression you can use that um, uh, Tsokni Rinpoche would uh, employ as a, a, a way to encompass the same principle is uh, undistracted non-meditation. Undistracted non-meditation. So those are deliberately... Um, say, contradictory terms, diligent effortlessness. So diligence seems to mean like, yes, get in there and do something. And effortlessness is like, yeah, don't do anything. There's nothing to do. Uh, and, or undistracted, to be undistracted, um, uh, to mean, implies to be focused and to be attentive, but then to call it non-meditation. It's like, oh, but th those, uh, those terms are deliberately coined to give uh, that mixture of both the putting forth of effort but that effort not being something that is, is stressful. And so that uh, um, is a, a theme that I, I've look, uh, looked at and talked about a lot over the last couple of years in particular because it's such a, a strong, uh, say, habit uh, that we have culturally that we've, it's a sort of, thank God it's Friday. Uh, think, oh, thank goodness, now it's the weekend. Or I'm lo really looking forward to my holiday. Or I'm really, I'll be really pleased when the, uh, when the retreat starts or when the retreat is over. You know? Yeah. Then I will. When I can retire, then you know, that is uh, any kind of activity or doing or engaging, even the activity of meditation, is a, a thing that I'm doing that can can become burdensome. So the mind looks forward to this promise of relief when I don't have to do this thing, even if the thing is meditation. As I often point out, often the most peaceful moment in meditation is when the bell rings. And you go, I don't have to do that anymore. The mind can just. There's a, not just because your knees are able to relax, but because there's this sense of permission to, to not be doing something. And there's this um, easing of the heart. And so that the, uh, I feel this is a, 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 a kind of cultural habit that we have as a way that uh, effort of any kind uh, is seen as being intrinsically stressful. Somehow it's a burden or a problem or something that it would be good to not have to do that uh, <coughs> the um uh the the very um presence of activity or and decision making and, and work is seen as some kind of a a stressful and and uh, uh say um burdensome presence in our lives but uh, if that was the case then it, then there could be no such thing as right uh, right action right livelihood right effort in the Eightfold Path, there, there, there could be no way of, of um, making choices and working and, uh, uh, and taking action uh, that was not conducive to peace. They, they couldn't be part of the Eightfold Path, right? But they, because they, they intrinsically involve decision-making and, and effort being uh, 
and made, direction being given to our lives. So there has to be some way that um, there can be right, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, you know, right effort, and so on, <coughs> right concentration, that uh, is somehow effort is being made and direction is being given, but that's not uh, uh, in any way stressful or, or to do with suffering, but is actually directed uh, towards peacefulness and towards clarity. So this is a, a very a central issue that sort of the feeling of, oh, um, thank goodness I don't have to do anything. It's not a matter of actually not doing anything, but it's the, the I element, I would say. And I do harp on a lot about self-view and uh, make that a, a very, very regular theme of, of uh, what's picked up on in these teachings and what I talk about. But I feel, yeah, that's the main culprit for dukkha. Is the the, uh, the it's the first of the ten fetters self view sakaya ditti and so that's the uh, in a sense the 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 primary obstacle to really finding peace and contentment and fulfillment in in our lives. So that the um, <coughs> the um, I don't have to do anything doesn't mean to say not doing, but it means me <laughs> me not doing. But there is there can be doing being done. Does that make sense? So that um, the uh, uh, the theme here that Lumpur is pointing to and is pavatanha uh, is that that any kind of pavatanha uh, and vibhavatanha they're always tied up with that I me and mine the uh, the I making and mind making tendency of the mind and so that uh, when uh, we want to understand, identify what is right effort the the samavayamo how right effort is actualized and, and developed, then the, the signal is that right effort always has uh, a quality of being free of self-view. It's not me uh, restraining the unwholesome or me letting go of the unwholesome, me cultivating the, the good and, or maintaining the good, but rather there's those qualities of right effort are, are cultivated but without the I, me and mine being woven into to the mix so that bhavatanha vipavatanha the desire to become the desire to get rid of it's always i should i've got to i've got to get i want to i want to be i need to get rid of i shouldn't be the uh, the signal the, the kind of the flag or the the indicator that it's uh, the motivation is is bhavatanha uh, vipavatanha that desire to become desire to get rid of is that the, the kind of uh, presence of I and me and mine in the mixture. When we grasp this desire to become bhavatanha, we experience unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. Vibhavatanha is where you have the feeling that you have to get rid of something. You have to get rid of greed because you're too greedy. And you have to get rid of anger because good people are not angry. You have to get rid of jealousy because it's disgusting to be jealous. You have to conquer your fears because a brave person is fearless and you have to get rid of whatever. It's all vibhavatanha. I'm not good enough the way I am. I'm greedy. I get angry. I get jealous and frightened. And I've got to get rid of those emotions. Just notice this attack. In a logical sense, we should purify the mind. We should free ourselves from these passions. These are imperatives in the holy life having to purify and free ourselves from the lower realms, the passions, the selfishness. It isn't that that is wrong, but just notice the attachment to the idea that 
I've got to get rid of this. It's my problem, and I'll never be enlightened as long as I have this anger. This is what the Buddha was constantly pointing to in this attachment, upadana, which is coming from the sense of, I am this person, I am this body, these are my problems, and they're blocking me from enlightenment. I've got to get rid of them. The whole thing is based on the delusion of, I am this person. So, Buddha, that awakened awareness, transcends the personal, personality belief, sakayaditi. It embraces everything, and therefore embraces your personality, rather than judges it. This is when we talk about the absolute subject, rather than the personal subject. When we attach to a personality, we become a personality, and interpret experience through the distortions of our personal habits. And as long as that illusion is not seen through, not realized and accepted, we're always going to be frightened. If we are the human body, and if we are the person, we can be physically harmed and emotionally humiliated. We, exp we all experience these things in many ways. Bodies are vulnerable states, and emotionally, we can be damaged just by what somebody might say to us, or how they look at us. On a personal level, therefore, being harmed in some way is never a present possibility. This is taking things personally, and makes the situation that we are living in rather fraught. So this is uh, the way that um, Lumpur Sumedha would often define self-view is that perception, I am the body, I am this personality. And uh, it's not saying that you know, bodies aren't here um, and that we don't have a name or a personality and different characteristics as we were having in that conversation the other day. We have a whole variety of different personality traits and such like. But it's the I am that's the, the, the kicker, that's the, the, the thing that makes the, the difference. And so that what he, the distinction he makes here between the absolute subject rather than the personal subject, the absolute subject is a way of talking about that quality of awareness, that quality of knowing. Like right, right in this moment, there's the hearing of the sound of my voice, or there's the feeling of the weight of your body on the cushion or the chair, and the the, um, the feelings of understanding or not understanding, or, and and so on and so forth. And so that. <clears throat> That quality of awareness that, that knows that, that, uh, that uh, awakened, aware uh, knowing, uh, if that's, uh, say, clarified and un unbiased in any way, then that knowing isn't taken to be a person. It's not me hearing, me feeling, it's not my mind or, or uh, my experience, but rather there's, there's knowing, there's feeling, there's experiencing, and it's not claimed as a, a, a person who's... who's a, uh, understanding or not understanding, a person who's feeling or a person who's hearing. It's just uh, that quality of awareness that is unlimited or, or unaffected by those, um, uh, say, the, the details of a, of a personal conditioning. The personal subject is, I am hearing, I'm understanding, I'm not understanding, I like, I don't like, I agree, I don't agree, I'm confused, and now I, now I understand. This is something that I, I've got. You know, I need to hear more of this so I can understand better. I don't understand well enough yet. Well, as I am, as I've got, I feel, the, the degree to which that I is solid and, and genuine and, and I say, um, not questioned, then that's what we call the, the personal subject. So that uh, if the mind conceives things in terms of, of self-view, I'm the body, I'm the personality, uh, as an absolute reality, 
then we are women, we are men, we are old, we're young, we're, un- we're understanding, we're not understanding, and, and that the mind is, is born into those conditions. And as Lumpur is saying here, you know, bodies are vulnerable states. Emotionally, we can be damaged just by what somebody might say. So the more that the mind is identified with the body, with the personality, and uh, with uh, emotions and thoughts and, and concepts, then if, uh, if we have an opinion and someone says, I don't agree, then I've been attacked. Uh, you, you know, then, then there's opposition between me and the other person. If, if there's no attachment uh, to an opinion, someone says, I don't agree, they say, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so rather than be me being attacked, there's just the recognition, oh, different people have different opinions. That's a, a different way of seeing things. There's no conflict, there's no contention there. That's the main thing is the um, is clarifying that quality of awareness so that the um, uh, when things are named as problems or as as gifts or as um, characteristics, then the mind is not holding those in terms of this is me, this is what I am, this is myself. Etang, like in the Anatalakana Sutta, etang mama, this is mine. Eso hamasmi, this is what I am. Eso me ata, this is. Self, so that uh, if that uh, that's clarified, then um, it makes it that much easier for the mind to work with both with with problems like uh, like saying anger or jealousy or fear, or with with attributes, you know, positive attributes, because you can have positive qualities like being able to concentrate, having a lot of wisdom, and being very kind. If the mind claims it as who and what you are, then even wholesome things can become a real pain in the neck you know, can become a real uh, uh, a real burden uh, and something that uh, uh, become obstacles to to realization does that make sense uh, in the practice of mindfulness with the, the field of experience uh, with the whale I wonder how come it's limited to our body the sixth sense Um, well, uh, in the, in in truth, it's not limited to the. Um, uh, I mean, well, the, if you take the sixth sense as the mind sense, then it is limited to that. That's that's um, all that can be experienced is because of the the karma of birth. Then it's it's known through the agency of, of this life, this body, this mind. So even if the mind is aware of, of say, profound states of concentration, or can even you know, say, look into different realms of existence. It's still that's still kind of manovinyana, mind consciousness. It's still a, a mental events. I mean, I'm not sure if that answers what yes, you're it's asking. Uh, using the connotation of uh, non-self, so, uh, it is, uh, makes more sense that the, the awareness includes more than. Well, it, 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 because of our birth, I mean, it's, it's tricky to talk about because then, because of the karma of or the the resultant karma of birth, then this is where life is experienced through the agency, through the medium of this this life, this mind. 
there is this body and its senses, uh, and so that that's where life is felt. Um, but to say, well, how, what's life? Uh, what's the and the and the universe and everything? What's the experience of that uh, apart from this body and this mind? The Buddha said, "Don't think about it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of you. You can't meaningfully imagine that." Well, it's because it's, it's similar to say, what's the experience of an enlightened being after the passing away of the body? The Buddha just said, uh, you can't, you, words and, and, and concepts don't, don't apply. You can't use words and concepts to describe that, that quality. So uh, it's more skillful not to even, not to even try. But I often quote that, um, uh, pa- the passage from uh, uh, the, uh, the dialogue of the Buddha with Upasiva, when he says, uh, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which can be spoken of is no more. So that you can't, the normal ways of reckoning of play, you know, three-dimensional space, time, individuality, they don't apply. And so that, and so outside of our ordinary scope and the experience of the, of uh, of uh, of an individual being's life and perceptions that there's no words or concepts that can accurately represent that. So the Buddha put his attention on, say, well, just uh, where uh, the world we can know is the world of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. That's, that's the world we can know. So as uh, that, that passage I often quote from the Sangyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha said, um, uh, <coughs> that in uh, that in the world that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world that is what we call the world in this dhamma and discipline. So the only world you can meaningfully speak of is the world of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. Yes. Uh, to speak of a world that is conceptually outside that is is uh, uh, is meaningless. And so the the um, at least in, in the Buddha's approach towards things. And so that, that um, uh, so it's a very uh, say practical. It's going through the you're going through the gateway of this individual life, this individual experience, rather than some sort of uh, cosmic theory or sort of uh, like a, what they call a metaphysical teaching, something that's trying to describe what's outside of the sphere of our range of of knowledge and, and uh, conception. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that include mental body? Yeah, so that's that's mind consciousness. You said that's the mind conception. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, it's not uncommon. To, um, people uh, say having an operation, an operation, and they're kind of hovering around the ceiling of the operating theater, going, "Oh, <laughs> I know that bloke. <laughs> he looks, he looks familiar." And it's, oh, it's, so that uh, yeah, that's mind consciousness. It's just the mind is dissociated from the body at that point. The body is a is a, a visual object at that point, or it can be the the mind is sort of projected away from the body and is off visiting different parts of the, the world or wherever. But it's still mind consciousness arising and passing away. Yes. Awareness is that your context or discernment of wisdom rather than consciousness. It depends how you use the words. Yeah, exactly. They overlap. So I'm thinking in terms of right view. Mm -hmm. Then 
awareness is that for this week? Uh, yeah, I would say my, my use of the word awareness, so I, I would often say awakened awareness or vijja um, for that quality of knowing, which is the opposite of avijja, ignorance, not seeing clearly, vijja is seeing clearly. So that, um, I would say that's synonymous with mindfulness and wisdom. <clears throat> and that they, they, they overlap. But uh, with you know, right view, samaditi, when that, that is seeing with that, that uh, unbiased view, that, um, you know, that, that knowing, that awareness that is uncluttered by greed, hatred, and delusion. So in terms of the two extremes of the self-using psychiatry is this the extreme of paternalism extreme of paternalism. Mm-hmm. so that's a, it's not imbued with those extreme no, it's it's knowing those those uh, extremes if they they arise if the uh, if the if the thought everything exists arises that awareness knows or oh, this is the thought everything exists or the thought nothing exists arises and that awareness knows that that, uh, that nothing exists is a, is a thought that's arising it knows those um, uh, concepts or formulations as as just that as concepts. Okay, to continue, learning to see this in terms of Dhamma, then, in terms of this Buddha or this still point, gives us the perspective on the way things are. This is developing wisdom rather than just reinforcing personal views of everything, because wisdom is a universal. It's not personal. It's not. I am wise. You cannot claim wisdom as some kind of personal attribute, but it certainly operates when we let go of identifying with the personality and the body. If we do claim it on a personal level, if we do start interpreting it in terms of, I'm an attained person, I'm an arahant, or anything like that, then we call it, quote, spiritual defilement, unquote. The impurities that come through insight practices. That's why there are very strict rules about this in the bhikkhu discipline. There are four disrobing rules, and one of them is if a bhikkhu claims high states that are not true, just to delude or exploit others. Even if I have no bad intention and start saying that I'm an arahant as a result of a particular experience, that is also an offense that I have to confess. It's much lighter weight, so if it, um, uh, <coughs> even if, uh, uh, if it's a mistaken impression, um, so you're not saying it to delude others, but you are... are uh, it's, it's still an offense, but it's not the intent to deceive. It's just a, what they call it over, an overestimation. And actually, even if you are an arahant, as a, as a monk or as a nun, even if you are an arahant or you have some accomplishment and you tell someone who's not a monastic, that, that's it's still an offense. So if someone who is genuinely, genuinely an arahant says to a layperson, I am an arahant, that's a, 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 an offense of the same weight as telling a deliberate lie or killing an animal. So it's not to be done. So even if it's true, it's still an offense. I've had experiences through heavy concentration where I have felt I was enlightened. Oh, I'm enlightened now. But really, it's better not to say anything. Ashton Chah would say, well, just keep quiet and practice a little more. (laughs) Then then it'll go away. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Even in Thailand, there are people constantly looking for arahants. Who's an arahant? Who's a stream enterer? There's a strong desire to achieve and attain and to know what other people's attainments are. So, 
As soon as they hear that somebody is enlightened, they run off to them. One monk I remember years ago claimed he was enlightened. This was one of Ajahn Chah's disciples, and a whole lot of monks suddenly left Ajahn Chah for him. Ajahn Chah wasn't claiming anything, so they left him behind, because they wanted to be with an enlightened master. But they were disappointed. The point is, most of us prefer to put our trust in those who say they are enlightened. You get these people who are very confident, these gurus that appear and say, I am the Messiah, or I am the Maitreya Buddha of this era, and people flock to them. Some of these gurus are so confident, in fact, <coughs> that their confidence has a kind of sparkle to it. When you're really positive, you have a kind of radiant quality about you. The cults that you hear about seem to have the craziest teachings, and the leaders are the most obvious con artists, some of them totally convinced of their own enlightenment. And that kind of confidence is very powerful. So when we don't trust ourselves, we easily give ourselves over to people we think know what they're doing. So uh, to go back to that a little bit, so Arjun Chah would never make the uh, make any kind of claim about being a, an arahant. Um, and uh, whenever people would ask, uh, he'd say, um, "Don't ask, uh, uh, don't ask if I'm an arahant, but ask yourself why you're not." Or he would say something like, it takes one to know one. Or, um, or those kind of, he'd always sort of uh, hand it back uh, to the person in, in, uh, in some way, shape or form. And then uh, one well, an interesting and beautiful way he spoke about it was um, they gave the, 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 the name to the book, A Tree in a Forest. He said, uh, um, I'm, like an, I'm like an old tree in the forest and the birds come and settle in the branches. And some of the birds say, he's an arahant, he's an arahant. Some other birds say he's not an arahant. He's not an arahant. So to me, that's just a chattering of the birds. <laughs> a very, way, a very good way of, of putting it, because uh, yeah, in the, and uh, and it's it's very true. You don't come across quite so many people claiming to be uh, Maitreya Buddha and and uh, or to, um, in, at least in the in the West nowadays, it's gone out of fashion a bit. But at a certain point, there was like five different people around the world all claiming to be the Maitreya. It's kind of interesting, and, uh, so that it's a uh, 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 it's a fact that when people have a tendency towards doubt or insecurity, when someone does come along and says, "You know, I know the truth. This is the way. Just uh, follow me," that there's something in us that likes that confidence. Um, even uh, and uh, it was a point that Don uh, Posamato would make uh, uh, in this this uh, era and slightly before, when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of England. He'd say, even if people hate her, they really like the fact that she's absolutely certain about what she what she says and what she does. Even if they <coughs> they disagree with things, that that kind of complete confidence that she would exude would uh, somehow give people a sense of reassurance, which is um, obviously a, a limited <laughs> a limited kind of a, a refuge, but. Uh, it was a, a a good example that that when someone is that absolutely certain about their own um, their own rightness, then that uh, there's a there's a kind of um, reassurance or a sense of well stay close to this person because at least they know what's happening they know where they're going I just well I'm not quite sure whether they're right but you know they're really sure about it and I'll just tag along behind and and hope for the best so that that. Um, uh, that's uh, is something that um, that Lumpur Cha uh, would never really never feed or wouldn't be 
say putting that out as a, a message to anyone or Lung Samedo, like you know, I understand everything, just follow me and everything will be fine. Or you know, listen, you know, I'm the one who knows the truth. But um the style is much more um <clears throat> you know, well, you know, what what do you think? How does it seem to you? Or or what difference does it make to you if I'm an arahant or I'm not an arahant? You you're still suffering, right? <laughs> and so that uh, the, the the style of practice is not to inflate the individual uh, um, but to uh, in a sense encourage the, the people who want to to learn to uh, to really teach themselves and so when people would project on the uh, uh, Cha and uh, sort of look up to him or uh, idolize him you would find you know, various different ways of, of bringing people down to earth or if people um, Claimed that they were they were uh, enlightened, then he would um, he would test them out. And um, there's a famous incident I, I think I mentioned the other day where somebody who claimed to be Nanagami um, came to to see him uh, and uh, was wanted to kind of let Lumpur know that inform him of his accomplishment and and um, was uh, uh, seemingly expecting Lumpur Chah to kind of be sort of uh, a uh, appreciative or uh, applauding and say, "Oh, well done! How, you know, pleased to meet you," and so forth. And uh, so, Lumpur's comment was, "Oh, anaga in in the village where I grew up, uh, uh, anagami is another word for mangy dog." <laughs> and uh, in northeast Thailand, or in Thailand in particular, to call someone a dog or to make some sort of reference, even an oblique reference to calling someone a dog or a mangy dog, you know. It was uh, obviously extremely insulting, and the fact that rather than saying congratulations, well done on your anagami ship, Dunford <laughs> said, "Oh, we uh, we say you use anagami as a way to talk to talk about a mangy dog." Then uh, <coughs> he uh, got really upset. This would be anagami and kind of stomped off. And then Lumpur Charles comment after he sort of got up and left was, "Oh, an angry anagami. That's a first. <laughs> Absolutely. It's their inner legal team, the weasel team. So it just say this kind of uh, it making excuses for things, like saying this isn't anger, this is just um, uh, appropriate wrathfulness. I'm just being fierce. You know, I'm not angry. I'm f- I'm just being fierce. Well, this isn't lust. It's just a uh, a, a natural process that the, the, yeah, the mind chooses to follow. And so that uh, there's a huge amount of self-deception, self-delusion. And um, one, it's one of the, the, the situations where having a lot of intelligence is a great hindrance because the, you've got a really good legal team that can make a case for anything. And that um, the uh, so there's there's a lot of people that have have been had so some kind of powerful experience, but then and then a claim to be enlightened, and then um, because of their own confidence or their own uh, assessment, even when their own teachers have said, you know, I don't think so. They say, "Well, you're. I'm sorry, Ajahn, but you're wrong, Guruji. That's your impression. But you know, I am. I am enlightened. And so they gather 
sort of disciples, people around them, or the pe- other people are convinced of that. But eventually, the the um, the, the kind of self-promotional, the self-deception, is going to fall away. And often, then people who are around them say, "Actually, you know, the emperor. You know, the story of the emperor's new clothes. The em- the emperor is is naked. You know, there's this person isn't really enlightened." And that, uh, the, uh, they were just deceiving themselves, or, or there was um, a uh, kind of an overestimation. And uh, once in a while, it, it would happen that somebody genuinely thinks that there's been some great accomplishment, and then they will sort of let their friends know, or uh, let people know, not to, not um, out of inflation, but just they think that's that, that's their assessment of what's what's transpired, what's happened within them. And then they'll find out, they'll realize later, oh, I really mis, uh, I misread that, I, I misunderstood that, and, uh, I didn't read that correctly. And so that uh, <coughs> they would then, you know, and then they, they might go around and say, I'm ter- you know, terribly sorry, you know, <laughs> you know, I was talking about that, I, I realized I was mistaken, that wasn't the case at all. But um, the, the, the situation is more often the case that somebody will make a kind of claim and then pre- present themselves as being an enlightened. Uh, teacher and uh, and then try and back that up and and project that as as long as they can and then they'll just uh, um, gather a certain group around them and uh, and uh, that'll sustain itself for a time but usually people more and more people fall away. There's just, I was just told um, one uh, fellow who was uh, proclaimed himself as enlightened. His, his magazine was called What Is Enlightenment, <laughs> and uh, he just got. Uh, uh, within the uh, last couple of years, he got abandoned by his whole community. Just uh, said, "No, you're not really enlightened. We were totally mistaken. The whole thing was a fraud, and we're we're off." And so, within a within a period of a month, he went from having a, a large community around him to pretty much everyone disappearing and leaving him to his own devices. And also, him recognizing or ag- acknowledging himself that, yeah, his uh, he had had some powerful experiences, but he. He did have a lot of ego and uh, attachments that he wasn't acknowledging. So it's um, that's one of the great reasons why friendship in the holy life is so important. That you're when you when you kind of uh, have some powerful experience and you go to your friends and you say, "Oh, well, this has just happened. I think this is this is something significant here." And they go, "Say that again." <laughs> and they're going people will give you give you feedback or or say, uh, "Well, I'm not not too sure about that." Well, like I was saying the other day about that instance where Lumpur Sumato just told somebody that the experience they had was Sobhana Jitta, you know, the beautiful mind, and that he heard Sobhana and heard and thought it meant Sotapanna, meant stream entry. So he thought, oh, Ajahn Sumato told me I'm a stream entry. He was carrying that around. But it's, it's also that the, um, I mean, Lumpur Cha um, never proclaimed himself as an Arahant, but he's, uh, he is. Uh, regarded as having reached arahantship, and that uh, that incident I was describing the other day, where he, um, uh, the novice drank out of the kettle, and Lumpur kind of went into his kuti for ten days, and and, uh, and then came out um, with a <coughs> and said uh, and uh, uh, said, you know, okay, that's that's that done with. So that was uh, according to the the communal understanding. That's when he uh, he. Sort of Realized arahantship was during that time, and that, um, but he never made any claim about it. And any and any kind of um, people 
when they would try to sort of work him around to the subject, he would uh, he pretty much always hand it back to hand it back to them and say, well, "They'll ask if I'm alive, ask why you're not," and such like. And so that he would, because uh, he could see that there was people get a lot of uh, sort of charge or faith or ex- or excitement or stimulus from getting close to someone who's accomplished, and, and he could see that there's a lot of a kind of obstructive emotion around that kind of that the good thing is out there that the, the, I'm close to this Ajahn, this great being who's there, and then they they're ignoring what they need to do on themselves because the attention is going to being close to the great one to the to drawing uh, drawing near to the to the bright light, and so Lumpacha would be always holding out the mirror saying, "Don't look at me, look at yourself." So when people tried to flatter him or sort of uh, he had this amazing way, even though I couldn't understand Thai very well, he had this main, amazing way of just sort of not being um, moved by that kind of praise or adulation or flattery or or, um, or a devotion. He would sort of somehow kind of dodge out of the way or <laughs> or reflect it back to people or, uh, and, and always say, uh, look at yourself. Work on work on yourself. You know, this is that's where you can really make a difference, whether there's something special about me or not. You know, what about you? <laughs> uh, and then that was an incredibly helpful, powerful teaching. And he he didn't need to be praised or loved or revered. There was absolutely no uh, no need in him for that whatsoever. It was kind of amazing. Because uh, <coughs> uh, I was. As a as a as a kid, as a teenager, as a young person, I was very focused on approval. You know, wanting more approval, the better. I wanted to succeed and be liked and approved. And and uh, in a way, it was being around him was the first time that I was near anyone that said this that had no value whatsoever. Whether you liked him or didn't like him, or you approved or you didn't approve, it's completely like water off a duck's back, as they say. It's like just straight through, like. That. No landing place. And it was kind of marvelous to see. Like he didn't need anyone to love him or approve of him. <laughs> what a concept! And also, the the whole way that the mind, because you can't, in in terms of dhamma, saying that a, a person is an arahant is not really quite accurate. There's arahat, you know, the mind is arahata, but the the mind that's really awake knows that this is not a person. So that. Uh, <clears throat> that that the the way that the mind relates to personhood or the, you know, the body the personality it, it's uh, it's in a way it's completely different for that uh, when the, if the mind is totally awakened uh, then the, they would the, that mind wouldn't say I you know I'm an enlightened person or I, I am an arahant <laughs> so they, it would more phrase it in terms of well, there is there is arahata there is there is enlightenment. But not you know this this person has got this or is this but that all that etang mama that's all this is mine this is what I am this is myself that's all fallen away so you can say there is there is arahatship but no person who's an arahant that's one way of talking about it so to continue sure. I mentioned that the other day. Something interesting. 
<laughs> well, the 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 way he um, it's like he that was his tendency within him, um, and uh, but he there was like no no landing place for it. And the Lumpodun said the, the same kind of thing that uh, when he was asked as a very very old man, but Lumpodun was another disciple of uh, Lumpodun. And uh, <coughs> one of his disciples asked him, Alumpu, uh, do you still have anger? And he said, uh, and he said, you, damn my owl, which is like, it's there, but I don't receive it. It's like the, 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 the delivery arrives, but I don't sign for the parcel. Like Alumpu Chao say, the, the phone rings, but I don't pick it up. So there's no, and that, that's one of those d- debates within the, 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 Buddhist world about uh, you know, the qualities of an arahant. Do they experience defilements but then not attach to them, or do they do defilements not arise? And so it's a one of those um, one of those uh, uh, much discussed topics. <laughs> but uh, so I take the, those comments of Lai Lumpur Chao Lumpur Dun as quite a, a, a accurate representation of how things work. And also in the scriptures, when you have Mara coming to the Buddha and trying to frighten him or arouse lust in him or greed, and uh, conceit, you know, when Mara comes and says, you know, you could turn this whole Himalayan mountain range into gold if you wanted to. And the Buddha then says, uh, you know, I know you, Mara. Even twice that much would not be enough for one person's greed. Or, or when he's um, sitting, uh, he's doing walking meditation out in the rain and this huge kind of Mara appears as this huge... Naga that attacks him, and the Buddha says, "You know, I know you, Mara. I'm not. <laughs> you know, I know what this is." Um, that uh, <clears throat> I would say that what that's representing is that those emotions of fear or greed or, or uh, whatever are arising, but it's that the the Buddha is completely unintimidated by that. There's no there's no um, uh, threat. There's no danger because it's a, the the answer is always, "I know you, Mara. You know, I know you, evil one." And that that is it's there, but it has absolutely no effect. Well, like the imagery of the, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, like that Mara's army kind of hurling in spears and they turn into shafts of light, or they throw boulders and they turn into flowers and kind of rain down to the ground. It's like that anything that's thrown into that space under the tree just it's transformed. It, you know, it goes from from weapons to to you know, light and flowers and so that uh, that's how how I understand it, and that feels um, most realistic. I know for some branches of Theravada, it's completely heretical to say that an arahant, or, let, or certainly the Buddha, would experience any kind of of defilement. But uh, I feel that that's how it works. That um, the uh, uh, I, you know, I could be wrong. But, uh, that uh, um, that sense of those qualities appear. But there's there's no uh, there's no landing place for them. There's nothing that that will receive them on their own. And they've got no power. That currency is not valid. That side of the border. It's like, sorry, your <laughs> this 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 money has no value in this country. You can't spend it here. That kind of thing. Okay, to continue. <laughs> The essence of the Buddha's teaching, however, 
is awakenedness. The Buddha was saying, wake up, not I am the Buddha and you must believe in me. His teaching is an invitation and an, and an encouragement to awaken. That means you wake up rather than depending on me waking up. This, to me, is very meaningful. In the beginning, I felt a lack of something. I didn't feel good enough. I felt I was a defiled person, a weak person, and I couldn't trust myself. And I wanted to find somebody I could trust. This, of course, in the end, led me to Achan Chah. But his emphasis was always on waking me up rather than encouraging me to bind myself to him. He could see what I was doing and kept pointing it out. I would ask him, You know, Ajahn Chah, I've been practicing for many years. Am I a stream enterer now? And he would say, How do you expect me to know? He would throw me back on myself. If you don't know, why do you think I would know? And whenever I tried to lean on him in that way, he would, in a gentle way, I never felt he was pushing me away, he'd try to awaken me to what I was doing, to my longing to depend on other people, because I thought they were wise and I was not. Actually, he was very effective getting me to see what I was doing. I also had this fear of taking responsibility for being wise. My personality would say, don't think you will ever be wise. My personality has this tyrant, so it says, you can't trust yourself, you're a mess. Do you think you are ever going to be wise? And it would go on like that. Then I began to see that this, that this inner tyrant was a habit. It wasn't alive. It was a dead thing and would say the same thing no matter what. No matter how good I was, I could never be good enough. No matter how strict I was in the Vinaya, I could never be strict enough. People would say, Oh, Ajahn Sumato, that was a really good talk you gave. And the inner tyrant would go, No, it wasn't. So, no matter how much the world came forth and said, You're really good. You're really wise. You're really the best. The inner tyrant would say, You're not. By recognizing that this inner tyrant was a habit, I realized that though it seemed alive, it wasn't. It was just something reactive. I then began to see it as something not to believe, something that, that didn't have any wisdom, something that was dead. It was nothing. It was just that when this button was pushed, it went, you're not good enough. And when it was pushed again, you're not good enough. Pushed again, you're not good enough. And that was all it could say. So, don't believe that kind of thing. Don't give it any ground in your consciousness. I'm not good enough the way I am and I need to practice in order to become enlightened is a sense of I, me as a person who's got to do something now in order to become something else in the future. And by contemplating such things, one realizes it all is based on delusion. For one thing, eternity is now. When you contemplate the present moment, the future is the unknown, isn't it? What is tomorrow? right now. It is what you don't know. You can speculate, guess and so forth, but this is all taking place now. The past is what you remember. So you remember yesterday or ten years ago, but that's a memory arising in the present. And I am this person, quote-unquote, is an assumption, isn't it? When you observe your personality, it changes according to conditions. So, your personality changes according to the conditions you are in. Whether you, whether you are with friends or enemies, with your parents or with your husband or wife, with your colleagues, alone, 
in the monastery or at the summer school. Your personality changes accordingly because that's the way it is. It adapts itself to the particular conditions present. Yet one has this assumption that I am this person all the time. What we're actually doing, of course, is creating assumptions and never questioning them, never looking into what we are doing. Awakened awareness allows us to see this. When we rest in this buddho, or this pure state of being, this listening, this attention, we begin to see how changeable and ephemeral the personality is, and how it depends on conditions for it to be happy or sad, ebullient, depressed, bored or fulfilled, or for it to feel accepted or rejected. But awareness transcends these personality conditions. It's a constant factor as distinct from the personality, which is ephemeral, and we begin to see that we cannot trust our personality as our identity, because it is not what we are, even though it says so, and seems so. We therefore break out of its limitations through awareness, not by rejecting the personality, not by trying to not have a personality, which would be impossible anyway, but by ceasing to be committed to the personality as myself. We limit ourselves all the time by committing ourselves to the personality. We bind ourselves often to the very unpleasant limitations that we habitually get caught in. Once we see that, we can free ourselves, we can let go. Our real identity then is in the awareness and in this attitude of welcoming, of metta. By trusting awareness, we can learn from it and find that we can accept and welcome even the most horrible things the things we are most frightened of. Once we trust in this practice, we find that we have space even for what we most dread. Then that fear and dread drops away. So this is, um, uh, again, a very common uh, common theme that uh, the, you get in Lumpur Sumedho's teachings that I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future. And you might, we might hear those words and say, yeah, right. <laughs> Isn't that what we're here for? Um, but uh, again, it's not as though no work needs to be done uh, or no effort needs to be made. But what it is pointing to is that the, the, in that formulation, you know, I am not good enough the way I am and I need to practice in order to become enlightened, is there's an, I am this person, this is me, I am a person who lacks this quality called enlightenment, and, and I need to do something in order to become different, so I'll be a different person in the future, I'll be this enlightened person off there in the future. And so that it's not uh, as though no, no work needs to be done, no effort needs to be made, but it needs to be diligent effortlessness, <laughs> or effortless diligence, you know, you can put it either way. But uh, so that if that framework of I am this person who needs to do something now is let go of, then uh, the the life in the monastery and the the work of our so meditation and living skillfully that can all operate in a in a uh, an unhib- uninhibited a free way, and the best results that can come from that will come from that. But it's not cast into the form of I'm doing something now to become something else in the future. Does that make sense? It's a, 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 as I was saying the other day, it's a paradigm shift from me and my problems, or uh, 
uh, and to what I've got to do now in order to become something else in the future to being awake now and being awake to the perceptions of the past, being awake to the imagined uh, perceptions of the future and that those all happen in the present. So that's where we can really make a, a, a difference and that the more there is uh, learning how to find that mysterious balance, the mysterious middle way of, of uh, wait, the making the effort to wake up then the uh, but that that effort being made free of self-view, not like me who's got to wake up, but rather it's the uh, it's waking up from the me rather than the me who's doing the waking up. Kind of need to be quick on your feet. The uh, and rather like we feel that we're imprisoned or limited by the personality. Now I want to be free of this personality. Well, the personality is. Uh, the the I is the thing that is the is the the prison. The the person is the prison. So that um, I want to be a free person. It's like well, it's impossible. <laughs> the the person the the I is the the personality is the prison. So that it's that, that when that uh, attachment is let go of, then the imprisonment ends. But it's uh, it's not the the uh, uh, it's not the the ego that can be. Uh, liberated, or the person can't be liberated. Is that the heart is liberated from personhood? As I say over and over, that which knows the person isn't a person. That awareness, that awakened quality, is not personal. It's not female or male or old or young. It's not monastics, lay or Theravada, Mahayana, or as any label. It's just awake, and so that, that um, freeing of that that awake awakeness awakening is. The purpose of the 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 effort that's being made, and it is effort, is work. So, but uh, in the in the teachings, it's called the kama that leads to the end of kama, the the work that leads to the end of or the action that leads to the end of action. Any other questions, comments? That have been very quiet on the nun side today. Anything else? Yes. Mine was attached to that body. <laughs> um, well, the um, the one of the interesting ways that the Buddha, because uh, you're not the first person to ask this question, <laughs> big surprise. One of the ways that the Buddha responded to that same question was, uh, he said, uh, um, when someone asked him, he said, so. Uh, Think of yourself as a as a young baby, a one year old child, a young baby. But are you the same person or are you different? So, well, in some respects, in some respects, I'm the same. In some respects, I'm, I'm different. Exactly. The the adult couldn't be here without the child being there, but the adult is not the same as the child. Things that happen to the child um, will have their effect on what happens to the adult, but the uh, but the adult is not the same as the child. There's a as a a causal connection as a relatedness, and one affects the other. You can't say that they're entirely the same, or you can't say they're entirely different. So, when people ask about rebirth, then uh, and they say, "Well, what gets reborn?" Then usually the, the simplest answer is habits. 
whatever the mind loves, whatever it hates, whatever it uh, is familiar with, that's what, what it will be drawn back to. And so that um, the personally, I've never had any difficulty with the idea of past lives, future lives, and such like. It's always, I remember uh, coming across the idea when I was about uh, eight or nine years old, and uh, thinking, ah, that makes much more sense. You know, growing up in sort of Church of England Christianity is the sort of received knowledge about religion that coming out of nowhere and then living a human life and then going off to heaven or hell forever seemed I, I knew that was really weird and it didn't feel right whatever's happening that's not what's happening I don't know what, I don't know what is happening but that seems really strange and then uh, coming across the idea it was just from a film I saw when I was a, a child and, and in this in part of the story was this person had uh, uh, was Realized how they they'd lived a life a thousand or two thousand years before, and that they had uh, they had a, a previous existence, and it was just part of the story. It wasn't like the main thing, but part of the story. And and there was this immediate feeling, ah, that makes much more sense. And so even though I have a scientific background, and that many people who are thinking scientific ways think, well, this you know you can't prove it, or it doesn't make sense, or it's illogical. I, I found it makes perfect sense to me. It's like a law of conservation of energy. Right? So if you think of consciousness a, as a, a form of energy, then it's just just like a, a wave. When you see a wave coming out from the sea, coming into the shore, it looks like a single wall of water that's, that's out in the sea and, and is coming to the, the shore. It's not actually... The energy is moving, but the, the, the water itself is moving in... in it's not exactly circles, it's just uh, it's the energy. The wave uh, is a wave of energy moving through, and it's not actually the that lump of water that's out in the sea and it's moving in and hitting the shore. But it's the, the water itself is is kind of moving in circles, and so that the um, that wave of energy, if you like, is the wave of attachments, things that you like, things that you dislike, things that you're familiar, things that are um, uh, seen as being who. Uh, the things that uh, that you you love or hate. So in in that in this respect, hatred is as much of an attachment as as love. So as a cause for rebirth, uh, and if you're dying, you think <clears throat> never again. Whatever I whatever happens, wherever I get wherever I get reborn, I'll be okay as long as it's not there. As long as I'm not around him. It's like, oh man, you should have done that. <laughs> That's like, okay, locked in. You know, it's like the homing be, like the homing beacon, because you know, hatred is as powerful an attachment as love, I would say. And you know, anybody who's watched their mind for more than a week would recognize that. <laughs> so, um, the degree to which the mind can be identified with other bodies, other personalities, then it, uh, that. That, that will carry on and from one life to another as one life comes to an end then that 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 momentum of habit will seek another birth where it can actualize those same habits of love and hate and so, and so forth but that's rather a large subject to begin that's seven o'clock of the evening next time, next time. <laughs> or not depending on what the future brings Kamakata Satu Karangatama Se Sa